This podcast was recorded live at RBC Water Park Place. Good morning. Welcome to RBC Disruptors. I'm John Stackhouse, and it's my privilege to host our monthly conversation about innovation, disruption, and how technology is changing everything around us. We've got a friend here on stage who's talking. <laughs> if you haven't noticed, it's a special season. It's a season of many things, but a season of toys. So we thought this month, let's talk about disruption and toys and games. It's a $200 billion industry. And we're so lucky to be joined today by one of the great innovators in the sector, a Canadian and a Canadian company, Spinmaster. Uh, we're joined by its founder, Ronan Harari. Ronan, welcome to RBC Disruptors. John, thank you for having me. Let's start with some quick snappers, uh, Ronan, about uh, you and toys. Sure. Favorite toy as a kid? Favorite toy was uh, the Spider-Man web maker. Best toy of all time? Best toy of all time. Lego. Lego, yeah. Lego, we got an audience. Lego, yeah. Lego, thank Lego. you. Lego is one, of the, it, it is one of the greatest toys and one of the greatest brands of all time. Um, if you had to take one toy to a desert island. You know, I would take a tennis ball. Tennis ball? Yeah, just okay, to keep Yeah, he's a ten, tennis player. Okay. If you don't know Spin Master, it is now the world's fourth largest toy company. Um, Ronan, I wonder if you can start by setting uh, a bit of level setting about the toy industry. Sure. How big is it? In the U.S., it's about a $20 billion market. Canada is about $2 billion, and internationally, it's about equivalent the same size. Growing, shrinking, but, flat? Uh, growing about 3 4% a year. That's pretty good. Yeah, that's pretty good. And growing mostly in, in Asia. What is the best market for toys right now? Well, the, the best market in the world is still the United States. On average, a parent buys about $350 per kid. Same here in Canada. And then uh, UK, France, they're all really good markets. And then you have the emerging markets like Russia, Poland... Eastern Europe is doing really well. Let's go back to the beginning of uh, Spin Master. It's a well-told story about how you and uh, your childhood friend Anton uh, came out of university and you decided to start your own business. Earth Buddy, what about uh, that caught your eye? Was there a Woody and Buzz kind of uh, remember Toy Story moment where you thought, yeah, toys are going to be the future? We've got to be there. No, you know, it's actually when we started with the, the Earth Buddy, um, it was actually sold to horticulture. So when we were making Earth Buddy, we had never even the, the idea of toys actually didn't even come into our into our mindset. So basically, we saw the Earth Buddy. It was um, it's made out of grass seeds, nylon, sawdust, and it was a product that was selling in Israel. And then uh, I drove up to Western Anton was still in business school, and I'm like, why don't we make a bunch of these? And he's like, you know, I'm interviewing a P&G, and I'm not exactly sure. And meanwhile, he didn't get into P&G. Um, Neither did my other partner, Ben. He interviewed at Leo Burnett. He never got into Leo Burnett. But anyway, so we looked at him and we said, well, why don't we just like, make 5,000 pieces for Mother's Day and see how they go? And so that's what we did. And we put it out in the marketplace. And we started selling it in the streets of Toronto. Um, and then we came back into the little warehouse that we had. And we still had like 4,500 pieces left. <laughs> <laughs> then we went to some distributors. And I ended up going to this place called Samco Sales. And then we get a call two weeks later. And they're like, uh, we need an order for 26,000 pieces for Walmart Canada. And then we ended up getting an order for half a million pieces from Kmart, um, which I shared with you a story. Yeah, so tell, tell the story of, uh, of Kmart, because this is so the reality of retail. It's brutal. Yeah, this was Kmart back in the day. This is like 1994. And so we're up and running, and we have, we have two factories. We're actually producing right at uh, Queen and Spadina. And then somehow Anton had a connection through a guy that he met backpacking in Europe who had some relationships with Kmart. And he's like, I can get you an appointment with Kmart. And so, so I went and I do this full presentation to the buyer. 
And after 30 minutes, he looks at me and he says, you know, I'm not the buyer for this product. And I'm like, nah, he must be telling me a story. So I pitch him again for another 15 minutes and he says, you know, I'm, I'm really not the buyer. So I'm like, okay, well, we'll give you the product on consignment sales, no problem. When you sell it, you pay us, it's all be fine. He's like, I don't think you really understand. I'm not the buyer. And I said, well, can you do me a favor? I drove four hours. Can you let me know who the buyer is? So he goes to his office. He comes back. He gives me the buyer's name on a piece of paper. I shook his hand, said, thank you very much. And then I proceed to walk around Kmart Corporation looking for this buyer. <laughs> and luckily, okay, she was sitting at her desk, and I did a 30-second pitch, and she's like, okay, well, I'll see you at 3 o'clock. So I said, great. Went downstairs, never left the lobby, never went for lunch, just sat there. She called me up at 3 o'clock, went up, and as I walk into her office, she's got seven competitor products okay, on the left side. And I'm like, wow. And I was going in with the price of 265, and then I saw the competitor product. I'm like, okay, we're going in at buck 65 to get this sale. <laughs> Dropped straight away. Um, and she was an amazing woman. And I did the pitch, and she was like, she said to me, okay, well, we're going to order 48,000 pieces, and if the 48,000 pieces go well, then we're going to give you an order for half a million. And that's what happened. So we ended up producing the half a million pieces for Kmart. Um, we got the order in basically July, and we started shipping her in like September. And by the end of the year, we had sold about a million pieces. That's fantastic. Yeah. And then your next big toy was Air Hogs. Tell us a bit about how the business works with sure. inventors, because that came, the original Air Hog Correct. came from what, it was a British guy, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, John Dixon. Peter yeah. So how does that work? How does he find you or you find him? It's a great question. So in the toy industry, it's predominantly driven by about 200 inventors from around the world, and they constantly come up with ideas, but they never commercialize them. And what they will do is they'll take those ideas to toy companies like a Mattel or Hasbro or Spin Master, and we'll license those products from them in perpetuity, and we'll give them an advance against a guarantee, and they usually get about a 5% royalty on the wholesale selling price of the toys. And so after the Earth Buddies, we came up with a product called Devil Sticks, which is a three-piece juggling set for kids. We ended up selling it to Toys R Us. We ended up selling it to KB Toys. And then from there, um, the buyers were like, well, what else do you have to, to show us? And then we started to learn about these, this inventor network. Right. And um, it's actually quite amazing because uh, uh, one of Jen Irwin's, I don't know if you guys remember the Irwin family, so my business partner Ben lived with Jen Irwin, and they were really kind to us, and they said, you know, you guys are getting into the toy business, and there's all these toy inventors out there. And they gave us the list. Wow. Okay, so my business partner Ben went around, and he actually started calling all these inventors. And we took our Earth Buddies, and we took our Devil Sticks, and we thought we were really proud of the, what we had accomplished at that point. And basically what happened was they, they would dust off everything that was in the closet. And basically everything they couldn't sell to Mattel or Hasbro, <laughs> they basically showed to us. And so we saw this product in 1996, which was the Air Hogs, which was an airplane that, that had a little one-cylinder pneumatic engine attached to a PT bottle. You pumped it up, flicked the propeller, and it flew around for 45 seconds. So we were like, wow, this thing is unbelievable. And so we licensed it from those guys, and then it went on to become a, a global success. Right. So you know, it's a great bit of background on that. If I can jump forward another decade to your next big, big hit, which is back again. This changes the company because you start to take a different approach rather than just uh, licensing toys and uh, working between the inventor Correct. and the retailer. Correct. Now you see it as a multimedia platform. Give us a sense yeah. of how that thinking came about, particularly working with yep. the Japanese, because that's like the Silicon Valley of toys. Right? Yeah, I mean, they're super creative in Japan. I mean, it's probably between the United States and Japan, it's the most creative place in the world for, for toys. And so we started going over to Japan in the year 2000 um, to see if we can actually partner with people over there and see if we can get the rights to take the products and sell them in, in North America. 
And so Japan is really famous for things like Pokemon, it's really famous for Beyblade, it's really famous for Transformers, all those really magical toy slash TV shows. And so we always dreamed about potentially doing something like that when we had the opportunity. And so Bakugan was originally um, this idea that came from a 23-year-old inventor, and he had the idea to actually take an action figure and put it into a marble. So we looked at it and we said, well, you know, we have these relationships with these Japanese companies. They love small, they love, you know, innovative stuff. Maybe they'll partner with us. And there was a smaller toy company called Sega, which is run by this amazing guy who's just like a toy genius. His name is Mr. Kokobun. And he looked at it and he said, first of all, he doesn't speak any English, but he said, I like that a lot. But he's okay. like the Steve Jobs of uh, Kinda. toys. Yeah. So he, he said, I, I love it. We'll, we'll partner with you guys on it. I come back two months later. And then at that point in time, I turned to him and I said, well, what do you guys think about doing a television show? You know, we'll do like an animation like Pokemon, 52 episodes, something like that. And he turned to me and he said, well, it's going to cost 12 million bucks. Do you have six? And I said to him, I need a few months. <laughs> yeah, let me get back to you. And uh, so that's what happens. We put in the six million bucks and we partnered together. We created the first season. We ended up selling it to Cartoon Network globally around the world through the United States. Um, and then it went on to become this, this global franchise, which ran for four years and became a billion-dollar franchise. But you almost took it too far. Maybe you did take it too far because the company ran into some challenges. What, uh, what happened? We had this incredible run where we basically you know, went from uh, standing starts up to about $900 million in sales. And at the time, in our 16th year, we had $900 million in sales, and Bakugan represented about 44% of the company's sales. And when you're younger and you're growing a business, everybody gets excited and you, you expand and we expanded internationally and we opened up offices and we started to hire and, and, and we basically grew the company. We basically grew the company too fast um, and there wasn't a solid enough diversified portfolio of products underneath to sustain the growth. And so in year 17 and 18, we had to restructure the company. Um, we did four restructurings in 24 months. Uh, unfortunately, we had to let go of 350 people, 35% of our workforce. And so it was a very difficult time for us where we had to restructure the company, but at the same time, grow the company and invest in content and invest in new products and um, make some acquisitions. And so we had to do everything at the same time to, to uh, preserve the company and preserve everything that we had built in those, in those 16 years. But having, I guess one of the lessons out of that is having that diversified portfolio. You're probably like a movie studio. You just, you don't know what's going to be the hit, but you've got to have a, a cycle of them to ensure that uh, when the hit comes, yeah. you can expand it, but then you've got the next hit coming, that's a, coming along. That's exactly right. Like, so we built out the games part of our business, which is the, you know, it's, it's, it's the non-exciting part of the business, but it's very constant. There's reoccurring revenue to it. You don't have to like, come up with a hit every single year. Um, you know, we bought a company called uh, Meccano, which is based in construction. Not as good as Lego, but it's, it is, uh, it's decent. Um, and... Uh, you know, so we diversified, we, we did a lot of things to diversify the company and make the company much more sustainable, and we, and we actually came out of the process um, a much stronger company. And, and you're focusing a lot more now on innovation. I mean, I was in your office last week. It's amazing, just all the, the, oh, the buzz around there, open concept, uh, lots of fun. Obviously, it's a toy company, um, but you can really feel the creativity in, in, in the air. And on your wall, you've got the word spinovation. Right. What does that mean? What's spinovation? It's... Uh, it's a strange word. <laughs> you know, it, it's, just, it's, it's all about being open to ideas from wherever they come from. Um, it's about infusing innovation. It's, it's all about not being derivative with the products that we put out. 
in, into the world um, and that we're working on. Um, it's, it's all about just infusing freshness and newness into our products. And how, how do you ensure that you've got that going in your culture, in, the, in that office? We have one mantra, which is we're open to ideas from wherever they come from. Um, and that could be externally from around the world, that could be internally from um, our own inventors, I mean, our own internal design people. And then just that constant desire to actually infuse magic into the products. And, and the greatest thing about the toy industry is that kids are so honest, <laughs> just brutally honest, and they want, they want new and exciting all the time. And so that pushes us constantly to do different things. And then also as a result of, actually when we started it was a consolidated business. There was two big players, there was Mattel and Hasbro. And so to be able to break through into the marketplace, um, you have to break through with fresh and new mm -hmm. and innovative stuff. And so that's very deeply seated into the DNA of, of, of who we are as a company. So your, your toys, I think you said they, they, they've got to be magical, they've got to be kind of first of a kind and one of a kind, at least to that kid and right. maybe the parents who are making the decision. Hatchimals yes. meets that test. So the thing about disrupt, I was talking about before about disruption is that stuff like this, this disrupts the industry, okay? Because never before could you have a fully functioning character inside an egg. The material is fully patented that you can actually peck through, it moves 360 degrees inside, it's interactive. And so like five years ago, it probably would have been like $250, which is completely price prohibitive for, for a birthday present or, for, or a holiday present. But what our team was able to do is they were able to marry the programming, so it's incredible programming that's actually in here, and low component prices that really disrupt the industry to bring something that you've actually never seen before at a price point that, that everybody can, can afford. And, and one big thing about our industry, it's disrupted by price points. The moment you can hit those magical price points, okay, the biggest price point where you do the most amount of volume is $9.99, then it goes to $19.29. This was actually exceptional, it was at $59.99. Most people thought you can actually, wouldn't be able to sell the product at that price point. Um, but everything sub 100 with amazing technology completely disrupts. That's a good lead into the Paw Patrol story. Is there anyone here who doesn't know Paw Patrol? <laughs> Is like this gigantic force in, uh, in kids' ent entertainment. It's like a multi-billion dollar franchise now, I believe. Yep. Take us back to, what was it, 2013, 2012 when this? It was 2012, uh, 2013. Uh, so we were just coming off the heels of Bakugan, and Bakugan sells to kids that are usually like five to nine, and it's all about this magical transformation. So we said, well, what about if we can do magical transformation for preschoolers? And that was our thesis. So we took that thesis, married that with the fact that we had opened up a production office here in Toronto, um, and we started to produce our own television shows. And so we created this brief, and we said we wanted to do transformation for preschoolers, um, and we sent it out to five different creative people around the world, and we had various different takes that came back, and the best one that we liked came back from Keith Chapman, which is the original creator of Bob the Builder. Um, and he came up with the whole conceit of these dogs that go on these rescue missions, and they all have a different character trait to them, and then we were like, well, that's great. We can do transforming backpacks, and we can make the dog houses transform. Um, and we just started this journey, and we found amazing writers, and we found an amazing director, and voice talent, and an amazing animation studio here in Toronto. And, and it, just, it just came together. It was one of those things that you know, no one expected that it would be as prolific and, so, and resonate with kids the way it has around the world. It, what do you think it is about Paw Patrol that has made it such a knockout, knockout success? Yeah, I think first and foremost the characters. 
the kids love the characters. Like, Marshall's funny. Like, everybody can relate to one of them, right? Like, I'm Rocky. I'm the mutt in the show. And people like Marshall is the fire guy, and some people love Sky, and, and some people like Zuma. So everybody can relate to the pups in, in, in a certain way. I think the storytelling is just really healthy, right? It's just about dogs going out and doing rescue missions and doing good things, and they're always playful. Um, uh, so I think it's characters first and foremost. I think the way the show was written, it wasn't written... It was written for preschoolers, but it was written, um, I would say, for advanced preschoolers. It didn't talk down to the kids, right? Um, so the pacing is very different from a traditional preschool show. And so the kids actually, they enjoy that fast pace. They enjoy the excitement. Um, there's also very, there's, a, there's the same cadence to every show. Like, so if you guys watch the show, Marshall always runs into the elevator, and he always you know, smashes into the other pups, and they always laugh, right? They're always having a good time, right? They're good time pups doing good things. Um, and you know what, John? The, the parents like the show, right? So that's, that's a good thing. That's key. So it's a, it's, it's a number of factors. Help us understand your strategy and what you were thinking uh, to develop this multi-platform approach. Sure. So you go from being a toy company or an object company into a multimedia company. What was your thinking at the time? 26% of the toys that are bought in the toy industry come from licensed products. And again, at a necessity, every time we used to go to the larger content players and we try to get a license, we'd get turned down. Mm. It would always go to our competitors. Is that because they, the terms of the deal or something else? No, it was, it was a result of, at the time, our competitors had better international distribution, and they also had relationships. They just had longer, deeper relationships. So we started to develop our own television shows at a necessity to capture some of that 26%. Um, but what ended up happening is that we started capturing the 26%, and then on top of that, we started capturing a higher piece of the margin. So not only do we capture the toy margin, but we capture higher gross margin on the toys because we don't pay as much royalties, and then we capture a whole bunch of margin on the licensing merchandising, so the T-shirts, the toothpaste, all that part of the business. So we have a totally different revenue stream that comes from uh, the content that we create. So we're not, we've evolved from being a toy company to being um, a kids' entertainment company with multiple revenue streams. So you're developing all these new things. At the same time, you've also picked up some old lines. You mentioned uh, Meccano, and then you bought this little thing, if anyone remembers. The, uh, the, the Etch-a-Sketch. Etch-a-Sketch. Is this just for kind of an optionality play for you, or do you see these old uh, nostalgic products evolving into something new? Well, one of our, you know, we have four growth strategies in our company, and one of the strategies is to um, innovate the brands that we have in the business and also make strategic acquisitions. So this work really well in our activities portfolio. So we have a large part of our business, which is all about, you know, we have kinetic sand and a whole bunch of activities. And so we saw this as an activity with a really iconic brand with huge high awareness. And so we figured if we can buy a brand um, at a reasonable price and infuse it with our innovation, then we can unlock some potential with uh, future sales. And so that, that, was a, that was a thesis around this. Um, let's talk about uh, a bit about the future challenges that you're uh, that you're thinking about. And one is this uh, little toy, the, the, the smartphone. Curious whether the handheld device eventually replaces the handheld toy, and how you think about that, you know, it's, that it's, challenge. It's a great question. I don't think it's going to happen. I, I thought it, in 2012, 2013, I thought that that would take like 15, 20, 30 percent share of the toy industry. Um, but it hasn't happened to date, yeah. and I don't think it's going to continue to happen. I, there's something about kids holding physical products in their hands um, and the three-dimensional nature of the physical products. And 
the the tactile nature of it and you know being able to use other senses it's it sounds very traditional but you use a lot of senses when you're playing with toys and and the wish fulfillment and the role play and what you can do with an action figure or what you can do with a doll or the physical interaction with an activities or construction with lego so the physicality of it and the wish fulfillment um, are really the the power behind the toys and i think that the the screens are are one-dimensional in a sense the most profound thing that those devices have done is the way that we actually market to kids. There's been an actual, I would call it a revolution in, in marketing to kids. So traditionally, the way we'd market is we do a television commercial and we put it on YTV or Teletoon or whatever, and that would drive the majority of the sales. Now, kids 7, 8, they're not watching TV anymore, and as you guys know, they're watching YouTube, and they're watching YouTube on mobile devices, and they're watching influencer videos. So the model has completely changed, and now we've had to reorientate ourselves on how we communicate our products through those devices to kids. Retail channels also changing yes, significantly. Toys, toys, toys R Us goes under this year. How did that affect your business? Uh, toys R Us was, was unfortunate because, I mean, they were the preeminent toy retailer and they were fun and everybody grew up there and they had this incredible brand. But unfortunately, the, the format didn't lend itself to the way consumers wanted to shop today. And, um, you know, we consider ourselves to be agnostic in terms of who we sell to. And a lot of the retailers, once Toys R Us went Chapter 11, they, they went in and they started to take up the sales. And everybody wanted to take up the share. Um, so people started, like Target, they expanded their toy department. Walmart expanded their toy department. You had other retailers doing pop-ups. Even yesterday I was at, at Whole Foods. They have, I don't know if you guys have seen, but here in Yorkville they have like a pop-up of selling toys and plush. So everybody's trying to get a little bit of the sales um, to make up for Toys R Us. And, uh, and the industry had to just wait its way through this year. But I think 2019, everything will, will settle. In, in our remaining minutes, I, I wonder if you can shed some light on what Canada needs to create more, more spin masters and uh, more excitement, in, in, certainly in the, the toy space. I was shocked when we were talking in your office that you said there were these 150, roughly, inventors in uh, Japan, maybe 100 in the U.S. When I asked how many yep. here... Yeah, not many. Not many. <laughs> not many. It's like not zero. Uh, why, why is that? You know, I think it's, it's, you know, it's just a focus thing, right? I mean, I, I, the one thing I would say about Canada and Toronto is, like, we have the best animators in the world. So on the toy side of things, we're, we're taking some steps to actually build up an inventor base here in, in Toronto. So um, starting in 2019, we're starting a course at Ryerson in collaboration with OCAD to learn how to become a toy inventor. So how to invent toys and then how to actually bring your toys out into the marketplace and get them to the consumers. So we're actually modeling a course that we've had five years running in a school called Shankar in, in Tel Aviv. And so the results coming out of the school are amazing. Um, and we've actually licensed some products from the students that graduate from that course. So it's very exciting. And then we're going to take it to another uh, city in 2020. And we're going to try to get five different schools around the world and get them to all interact together and, and create this whole ecosystem of new, young, fresh uh, toy uh, innovators. You spent a lot of time in, in Israel. I'm curious what insights you bring back in terms of how they develop an entrepreneurial e ecosystem yep. and what Canada needs to create like 100 more spin masters. I mean, they're very different to Canada, but they, the thing that, they're, that they have going for them is that they like to fail, and they're okay with failure, and they actually... They don't celebrate failure, but they're like, it's almost they wear failure as a, a badge of honor. And it's almost expected that to get a success, you need to fail a handful of times to get the success. And within Spin Master, how do you guys roll with failure and, and how do you learn from it? 
the truth is we just don't, we don't talk about it that much and we don't apply any blame to one specific person. It's a very much collaborative process and you can't really point to one person. And we don't ruminate about it. We just mark down the product, clear it through the retailers, and we're just thinking about the next product and what was, and just incorporating the learnings into the design development, the play pattern um, of the next product. So it's, and then the flip side is, you know, we don't attach success either. Like I can't point to the Hatchmill and say that was that one person, right? That was like 15 people that made that thing really successful. So you need to have it on both parts. You can't just celebrate the success, give one person and, and the failure. What, uh, what an amazing story. It's incredible what, yeah, uh, not only what you've built, but what you are uh, building. Please join me in thanking Ronan for a fantastic conversation. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thanks for downloading RBC Disruptors. Our show this week was produced and edited by Vocal Fry Studios. You can reach us at RBC Disruptors at rbc.com and join the conversation on Twitter using the hashtag RBC Disruptors. Thanks so much for listening.